0: Hey there product lovers, welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo, and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products, as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love Podcast. Well, welcome over to the Product today. I'm here with Daniel Skrivner, who's the CEO of Flow. Why don't we kick this off, Daniel, by having us having you uh, give us <laughs> a little bit of your background? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So my background, you know, makes a lot of
1: sense looking backwards, but you know, it's uh, but it only makes sense in, in hindsight. <laughs> but you know, my story is. I still feel incredibly fortunate that I stumbled into design and my love of design and you know that introduced me to the world of product design just super early on in in life. I actually stumbled into it when I was taking a, a class one summer in high school all about HTML, because I was interested in, in the web and that was the way you built websites back then. You didn't need CSS or JavaScript or anything else. And I just fell in love with this idea. It was the first time in my life I felt like I could take something in my head put some effort and energy into it and make it into something that that actually was something I could share with other people. And that became really addicting. But that then led me to the next problem, which was I wasn't happy with how anything looked <laughs> or how it felt. And it wasn't, and I, you know, I could take this idea kind of and like translate the functionality but there was something that was missing. And so that was my, that initial sense was what led me to discover design, which, you know, I think there's a lot of ways you can design or you can define design. There's a lot of different definitions and a lot of different ways I think people perceive it. But for me, it's simply grappling with really hard problems you know, I think all great designers are solving truly difficult problems. Those could be business problems, product problems, competition problems. And then you're trying to solve that problem in a way that ultimately has some sort of an elegant, artful twist so that you have something that's newer or different and or better than the competition. And, you know, though that kind of tug of war and that problem solving using both parts of your brain is just fascinating to me. And so that got me hooked in and,
0: and yeah, and then I've had a lot of fun since then. Yeah, and some some great companies you worked at Apple and Square come to mind. You know, tell us about your time at Apple and Square.
1: Yeah, I feel incredibly fortunate that I had a chance to work at Apple for almost 4 years early on in my career. You know, for a little bit more background, I don't have any formal degree. I ended up dropping out of college in order to pursue design and my kind of thought at the time was I could either go to school and kind of learn the fundamentals, but you know I've always been self-taught. I was taught at a really young age by my parents that if you want to learn something, there's nothing stopping you. There's <laughs> a world of information out there, and you can go and find it and and teach yourself. And so it felt like I could learn the fundamentals on my own. And so what I was ultimately this kind of fork in the road I was left with is felt like I could either take four years and you know kind of check this box in life of getting a degree, or I could go and get some reps in and actually try to get better by practicing design and by actually taking on clients and solving problems for people. And so I chose to do the latter, was super freaked out at the time, and you know, but I'm um, fortunate that it's all worked out really well. And so, I don't know, maybe three, four years into, into that, into actually doing design work every single day all the time, I ended up getting offered a, a position to go and work for Apple. And so I moved to San Francisco at the time and joined their marketing communications team, which is called Marcom Internally. And that's an ambiguous name that a ton of things fall underneath. And so what was amazing there is it was just this, like the world's most incredible design studio. We had, you know, literally all the packaging design for all of Apple's products was done in the building. All of the branding, all of the work on iconography, all of the work on the keynotes was done by uh, a team internally. uh, That was called the Lava Lounge. You know, I got to work with everyone building the website, all the incredible copywriters. And so it was just, it was an amazing experience and it was an amazing part of of my journey. And I took a lot of things away from, from my time at Apple, but I think, you know, to maybe try to Share a few of them, I think one, I got an appreciation there for the true power of copywriting, which I think a lot of people still don't understand, you know, and whenever you engage if you go into apple's retail store, you see all those clever ads that are on the walls, what is making those work at the end of the day is really incredible writing and just really, and then just really great, but simple design execution, you know, and if you go to Apple's marketing website, or if you're entertained by a keynote at the end of the day, that all stems from really amazing, really hardworking, really thoughtful copywriters who really try to do a great job of understanding what this is, you know, so for instance, I think a great example of that would be say something like face ID. You could describe that in the most convoluted, complicated way imaginable, because I'm sure that if you were to try to approach it from the technology angle, it would not be difficult to explain. And I'm sure there's a ton of, you know, really hard engineering and really difficult problem solving that supports that. But what Apple's I think masterful at is understanding that in its nuance, but then knowing how to communicate it to consumers who really couldn't care all that much how it works. They really care about it more for how it benefits them. So how it saves them time, how it saves them from having to type in their password all the time, how it saves them frustration. So I think I took that away, just their ability to understand how to take these complicated things that can be communicated in a bunch of really ineffective, uninteresting ways. And how do you, find that angle where you've really got something special. And then I think the other one that I use all the time, I've used in every job I've ever had, is just the approach Apple took. And I think one thing that, you know, it's, I have yet to meet someone who says something bad (laughs) about Apple's execution or their ability to ship a new version of the OS. I think people have quibbles with small things and, you know, a lot of it is ultimately subjective. But I think by and large, people view Apple as you know, being able to do what I call repeatably excellent design, which is not kind of hit this magical solution once, but how do you create a factory that can turn those out time after time after time again? And one thing that people really don't understand, I found since leaving is I've worked with so many CEOs, so many companies who will say some, you know, talk very highly of Apple, and list that out as one of their references and this could be maybe you're you know in the past I've done rebranding work and someone's thrown out Apple's brand as an example I've also done a lot of product design work or marketing design work and Apple always comes up and so you know you say okay great you know then you're you're moving on and then we're talking about how to approach the project and then it's like okay well this project we've got about eight weeks of work we have four weeks to do it we need (laughs) need to be you know here in two weeks and I think something that people don't understand about what makes it work at Apple is the way their process is set up and I think uh, I found Wonderful at the time, but typically the way it would work is one: we would all work in small teams. So it was kind of the Amazon Jeff Bezos model of kind of five-person teams that would work together on on projects within the Markham team. But the other thing is, we every single project intentionally overweighted exploration. So what do I mean by that? I mean like if at the end of the day we were working on something like a marketing website that say realistically, you know, say it's three pages. Realistically, you could design that and build it in, say, four weeks, that project would be a three-month project. And we would spend the first four to six weeks of that. Literally, we knew what we were working on, but we weren't working on solving the ultimate problem. We were focused on just basically generating ideas. And what was amazing about Apple is, if you take a big step back and you look at it, Really, you know, yes, they're innovative, but every single innovation is this tiny little incremental step forward. And the way that they do that again and again over time is they throw out a tremendous number of ideas. The team internally... All you know, debates those, discusses those, and then you ultimately triangulate. And you know, at the end of the day that you're not going to ship one of these crazy ideas, <laughs> this, you know, kind of wild exploration that you've thrown out. But it's amazing how many ideas you pick up from that and pick up from this and pick up from this. And then you bring those all together and you end up with something that maybe feels incremental in some respects, but is also really innovative in a lot of different ways. And so I think those two things, just, you know, appreciating and understanding the power of copywriting, because I think in most startups. they One, they don't hire for copywriters. Two, they don't think they should pay them well. Three, they don't understand why that's valuable. It's just, it's just a huge mess. And then the other one is I think people, tradition, they want to get Apple-like outcomes, but they don't want to follow an Apple-like process. And ultimately, those things are incompatible.
0: Yeah. So, let's dig into that repeatable design, right? Is that an outcome of the process? Yes. I, yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, in my mind, that's what I, again, you know, and there's a tweet from Elon Musk recently I thought was interesting, you know, so they just had their big battery day at Tesla and they debuted a bunch of technology that's not in production yet. So it's stuff that they will produce, but it's not, it's, they aren't at a point where they can begin producing that in mass yet. And you know what? His tweet was just—it was really simply. It was building the machine that builds the machines is infinitely harder than building the machine. And that sounds like a bunch of weird words strung together, but it's really this notion that, like, ultimately at the end of the day. And there's you know a a lot of books around this. There's a lot of people that talk about this. Uh, You know, if someone wants to look up another take on this same idea, Keith Raboy of Coastal Ventures and Founders Fund, he's been a venture capitalist for a while, and I I had the, the opportunity to work with him at Square. And really enjoyed that. But he has a whole presentation people can look up online about just how do you, why at the end of the day, a company is a machine and what is it made of and how do you get that to perform really well? But yeah, I think every, in my mind, anything that you expect where you are trying to generate something that can have a prolific outcome where everything that comes out of it is is great. Ultimately, at the end of the day, that all either works or doesn't work based on the process that you set up. And I think, so spending a bunch of time there, figuring out what that is, why it should be that way. And then I think, honestly, the hardest challenge is, you know, because I've seen this a ton of times, is even if you know that you should, so say, you know, that example I just gave, you want to overweight weight exploration and you always want to make sure that this time that from some vantage points might seem like wasted time is not wasted at all. That's where you're generating all these ideas that you'll then result but that at the end of the day is, yeah, it's, it's a, you can know those intuitively, but then the other difficult challenge is when you're in the moment, when you're up against the gun, how do you make sure you don't shoot yourselves in the foot by short-circuiting this wonderful process you've put in place? So it's both under, you know, kind of really intentionally creating a process. And then the second piece, which I think is even harder, is
0: just going by that day in and day out. You talked about overweighting exploration. Yeah. and I, I think- we see especially in a lot of startups that they do tend to think that spending too much time there is wasted time. Yeah. Would you tell them to think about that differently? Yes, and absolutely. the second part of the question, you know, what else in the process that you saw at Apple led to repeatable design other than having the process in place and overweighting the exploration side, were there other things you think are super important? Yeah, so just to start with that second question, I think, you know, there was a bunch of things. I think having
1: the execute. So as a design team, as I mentioned, it would be a copywriter, an information architect, which in my mind is someone that's doing design work, but they're doing it at, at the structural kind of more rational level of the design exercise. Then you've got a bunch of art directors and creative directors. So, but all at the end of the day, that would end up being a team of about five people. So it was a cross-discipline team. You had people approaching the problem with very different perspectives, but, and yet you were all working together to come up with one solution. One So you, so you were all going to put your thumbprints all over the but ultimately you're only shipping one version of this And, and so i think there's a lot of wonderful things even just in that concept of you know having divergent points of view making sure you have a small enough team that they can truly own it and i think one thing there that I find myself constantly trying to remind people of or talk about is I think all great design work or product work at the end of the day feels singular, meaning when you interact with it, it feels like it came out of one person's head or one kind of shared mind or shared perspective as opposed to all these competing points of view. And so I think you know assembling that team small enough that they can debate it and discuss it, but ultimately what comes out the other end feels very much like you're taking the best ideas and then you're putting all those together in a way that totally makes sense. We're not warring and battling with each other, but they're they're living together. I think another one was Apple had an amazing culture of design reviews, you know. And now, uh, you know, I've worked for a lot of companies, and I would say at startups, there's this, I think, very juvenile take that like hierarchy is is bad, you know. And if you ever ask somebody to try to explain that they really can't it's just like oh but you know what we can just work in a way where we're all peers it's a flat organization and i think one thing that was very clear at apple is yes everybody the spirit of the way you work together was that you were all peers working on a problem you respected each other's points of view but there was also a very clear sense of hierarchy and when it came you know and the way that that would show up is typically just as you were, you know, as we were going through this exploration process, as we were doing the final result, there would be uh, daily reviews with a creative director and sometimes multiple creative directors. There'd be weekly reviews with an executive creative director or the creative director overseeing that product and the creative director overseeing the entire marketing communications team. And so, you know, there was a process and it was expected And it was looked at as being incredibly valuable that yes, you're not just gonna, you know, take something in your mind and ship it, you have to be able to pitch it, you have to be able to take feedback on it, you have to be able to defend it, and you have to be able to approach when you're in the position of reviewing other people's work, you have to be able to help them make it better. And the biggest thing that I learned there that Apple did really, really, really well, and that all the best creative directors I've worked for have this skill. Is I think, you know, when some people, especially junior designers, think of a feedback process, it's all about critique. It's all about, yeah, you know, here's this, but why are you using this color? Or I really don't like this color. Or what about this? And so it's a lot of very kind of one, it's a lot of eye language. And two, it's a lot of, at the end of the day, it's all subjective. And so much of design is subjective. What Apple did was 180 degrees different than that, which was, yes, sometimes there was, there was always, you know, we were all trying to improve the work together. So inherently that means that there are some things that can be improved, but there's multiple ways to go about that. And the way that they did it was just by asking really wonderful questions. So as an example, rather than trying to think of a real world example, Maybe one would be you're looking at a homepage design and someone feels like the hierarchy is wrong rather than just saying this should be here, this should be here, this should be there. They'd say, well, I'm really curious, you know, so this is up at the top and this is over here. How do you, do we feel like these things connect? And so it's a lot of we language and ultimately it was this idea that your job was to ask really great questions because that would expand everybody's mind and then create a dialogue and a discussion you were all participating in together as opposed to just we, out these kind of little, little punches or <laughs> to, tr- to try to improve it, which I think is, I, I don't think that works long-term and I don't think that creates the best culture. And I'm sorry, I blanked on that first question.
0: <laughs> no, no, That's okay. I was going to go back to it. Uh, but I think that was, that was very insightful going. The first part of the question was a little bit like, why don't startups do more exploration?
1: I think, you know, so that's a, it's a simple question, but I think it's a, it it actually has a pretty deep answer. At least that's a conclusion I've come to over time. I think that our brains there's, you know, we deal with so much complexity all the time that our brains always try to default to just a really simplistic understanding of the world. And I think that, you know, it, when you make the case that, uh, hey, this thing that could take one month, it would be, it's going to be better if it comes out the other end, if you end up taking three months, and if we d- approach it this way. You know, everyone can kind of understand that at a high level, but we all are tricked by our brains into thinking that whatever feels more linear, whatever feels simpler and shorter is quote unquote better. And why would you do that? Then you can do more reps. And, and I think then there's also just if you say yes to that. So if you say, hey, this thing that could take one month is actually going to take three months. That requires a lot of conviction, and you know it's uncomfortable because ultimately what you're doing is putting your belief in this process. So it's not any one person; it's just this. I it's trust in this idea that if you give it more time and if you create an environment for exploration and iteration and triangulation between different ideas, that you're going to get something else better out the other end. And I think if you were to say that to a scientist, I think if you were to say that to a doctor, I think they would all be like, well, absolutely, you're going to get better time. You know, yes, you're going to get better results coming out the end if there's more room for things to be kind of you know, and, and Steve Jobs had a really wonderful metaphor and I'm gonna absolutely butcher it, but potentially you can look it up and it include the better version in the show notes. I remember one metaphor he had was like a rock polishing machine. So if, if people aren't familiar with that, there are these machines that are like, it's like a drum and you would put a crystal inside it that you want to polish and you'd put a bunch of other rocks and materials in it. And basically at the end of the day, you would turn this drum and what happens is incredibly basic. It's just basically things colliding with one another and the harder things polishing the softer things over time. But that idea, that collision of ideas, that debate, that like refining of something over time I think it's just inherently really hard to understand and it requires that we, you know, kind of mute our monkey brain that wants the fastest, simplest, easiest way to get places and engage the more analytical, inquisitive, process-oriented, kind of higher level part of our brain.
0: Now, it's interesting because I also think about you know this conflicting desire to ship, right? And having yes. a bias to ship. And it's definitely different in hardware where you can't just be like, hey, let's going to put something out there. We'll manufacture some and we're going to redo it next week. You know, that doesn't work as much. Yep. But in software, it kind of does. You know, how, how do you balance that? Like overweighting exploration, but still having a bias to get stuff in, in especially on the software side, in people's hands and get feedback, quote unquote, from your customers? No, it's an,
1: it's an amazing question. And the re, just to quickly point it out for everybody, it is very different. Like what I've been discussing is at Apple, we were creating, you know, effectively a marketing campaign for this new product. And that is something that you ship at once. It has to be amazing because people are going to judge it from the moment it, it's out in the world. And you don't really have a chance to go back and edit it or tweak it after the fact, you know, the way, and th- that was something that, was eye-opening to me at Apple is just that they were very comfortable. And if you go through Apple's website, you literally, it's like seeing the rings of a tree. You can go to the products that launched long ago and haven't been updated and see previous marketing approaches and the previous aesthetic and the previous way that they explained ideas. And you can go to the latest stuff and see something new. And they let all that linger. So Apple doesn't, you know, they really try to focus in and just make sure that the next thing that they're doing, that each subsequent step is as incredible as it can be. It is very... Different than software. So, the approach I've described is very different than what we do at Flow, but I'm still trying to optimize for that same thing at Flow. And what we try to do there is basically have two processes that are running in parallel. And one of those is we have a weekly shipping cadence. So, every single Monday, we do this religiously, we do this with a lot of discipline, but every single Monday, we have a release that goes out to all of our customers and we publish a change log with all of those updates and then so that's kind of the that's always happening and the reasons i think that's important is customers want to i think it's incredibly important because software products are inherently very competitive, partially because there's a very low barrier to entry and there's more products than ever before. And there's a lot of, it's very easy to do the grass is greener thing. So, and come up with a reason that feels decent enough to negate the sunk cost and make you want to switch. And so I think it's really important that you just have this discipline because I think that gives customers a sense that, Things are happening, things are always improving. If I share an idea that's going to be worked on, if I share feedback, I'm going to have it recognized and discussed and prioritized at some point in time. So we have that going on. But then there's a second process that we have, which is where we are taking a little bit of that longer, more exploratory piece. And so basically, we have these kind of short sprints, small gains that are shipping every single week. And those are traditionally tweaks to things. I'll give you an example of that. In the latest version of Flow that we shipped, there's a whole new UI for filtering. And one thing we had not put inside there is filtering by team. And it's super boring. Some companies have a lot of teams. Some companies have one team. But if you're a CEO or a leader in a company and you have multiple teams, it's super helpful to be able to look at the universe of tasks and then filter that by team. So you can see all teams or one team. And so that's something where in my mind, it's like, we don't need to overthink that. That feels like useful functionality we should put in. So that gets prioritized and becomes part of our weekly sprint that we do. And in addition to that, we're also handling bug fixes. And so it's basically... Little tweaks, little improvements, kind of in my mind, it's like rounding rough corners. It's just sanding down things to make it more frictionless. That's the process we're doing every single week religiously. And then something that's a little bit disconnected that's happening at a higher level is we're doing much bigger explorations around bigger ideas. And in my mind, I think what you wanna do is just make sure that proportionally you've got the right amount of time allocated for exploration for big ideas where there's a lot of, and and this would be maybe the way, the principle I would give people is you want to overweight exploration anytime there's inherent risk in execution. And what I mean by that is like, if we're working on a big new feature for flow, we want to get it right. And if we want to get it right, we don't want to ship something that's half working or only works for in some instances. Or if someone were to say, hey, what about this? We'd be like, wow, we that didn't even come up in exploration. We were just so rushed. We didn't even think about that. So when we're doing something that has inherent execution risk, meaning we could get it wrong, we could make customers upset, we could have it be a poor experience, you really wanna take time. And that's when you wanna build in that extended period for execution and exploration, or sorry, for exploration. And if, some, and if what you're doing at the end of the day is just like a yes, of course, and it's largely a, a simple execution exercise, then not no real, exec, you know, no real exploration needed. So I think it always has to match that. But the way we've done it at Flow, long story short, is just to have two processes running in parallel, a bigger, more exploratory one for big changes we want to make, and a simple, really iterative, week-over-week religious process for small tweaks and small refinements.
0: And speaking of Flow, you know, why don't you give a little bit more detail on what Flow does and the problems you're solving there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what Flow does at the end of the day is, you know, I think on the surface, we help teams manage their plans, goals, and tasks so that they can stay on track, they can hit deadlines, and they can achieve the goals that they're after. And, you know, if you were to take one look at the UI, you would generally get that sense. You know, there's a task tab where you can explore all of the tasks in your entire organization or team. There's a projects tab where you can see all the kind of projects that you have in motion, the projects that you have planned that then hold a bunch of tasks that are going to, or how you're going to execute that thing. You know, we have chat, we have calendars. And so at a high level, it seems pretty simple. But what's interesting is, you know, I think what we do is a lot more basic than that. And my thinking on this has evolved a lot over time. And really, we're in the business of helping people lower friction so that they can take ideas or goals and work towards them faster. And then we're helping them increase their speed so that they can achieve more of what they're after at a faster rate. And so really at the end of the day, the way that I think about it is, one, we're solving this mushy, hard problem of how do you get all these humans with different points of view, different ideas about how things should be done, different preferences for time and, and how they like to work to work together as one and move in the same direction and stay on track and hit deadlines. So that's one problem that we're solving is how do we use f- software to help facilitate great teamwork? But the super fundamental problem, which is the problem in my mind that's age old, it's timeless, it's the same problem we're gonna be solving 10 years from now is providing a set of tools that help people achieve
0: more. So what what made you want to join Flow?
1: Yeah, so Flow's been in business for 10 years. And early on when the company launched, it was primarily marketed and it was designed and meant for individuals. And so it was a way initially for anyone to be able to kind of have their own list of tasks and then be able to share those with friends, with family members, with people they worked with in a one-off way to be able to work together. And so it started as a very kind of individual focused company. And what's amazing is I still remember when it first launched. I remember the video that Adam Lizagor did. He's, he's uh, a guy who runs Sandwich Video. He did a really great video for us at Square. He did one for Flow. And when it came out, it was remarkably well-designed. It was, I think at the time for sure, it was the best design productivity tool in the space and I remember signing up for it and using it. And so that was a long time ago. So if we fast forward in late 2018, you know, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next and I've known Andrew Wilkinson who is the, one of the partners at Tiny Capital. They own Metalab, Dribble, Flow, a bunch of others. I've known I've known Andrew for 10 years and he was just kind of serendipitously going um, to be in Boulder. And so I asked if we could grab coffee. And, you know, all that I was really keen to do there is like, I love what he's doing. He's had a super interesting different trajectory. I just wanted to kind of see if I can learn from him and see, you know, what he was working on, what he was focused on and just generally catch up. And anyone that knows him will know that, that he has the skill of kind of, so that's, I went into the coffee really to learn about, about him. And then Emily, that got flipped on me <laughs> about two minutes and it was, well, what are you doing next? What are you excited about? What are some of the problems you want to solve? And so that was the start of a conversation of, was there some way that we could work together? And after about six months of discussion, I ended up coming on as the CEO of Flow So I started in early 2019, I think it was March, 2019. And I've been in the role for the last 18 months. And what interested me in it was a few things. One, I had that fond memory of using Flow really early on. And that is still the tool that we aspire to be. And that's the the company that Flow aspired to be before I joined, which is, you know, it ultimately got spun out of MetaLab and we want to make the best design tool in the space for teams to manage all their work in one place. And I think generally when I look out at the space of productivity tools, it's, Really boring and uninteresting, and I think it 's really under optimized it's you know it 's just brutally efficient and effective and there's no there 's no joy in any of how things are executed and you know the analogy i 've used internally is I think all software at the end of the day through design through execution, you really choose you know think of the software you 're making as a three dimensional space when you walk into that is it warm is it inviting does it feel like a we work office or a hotel that you want to be in or does it feel Like a cold corporate space with a bunch of cubicles and bad lighting and bad materials. And it's just meant to be useful in some capacity. And I think the latter is generally how most productivity tools feel. And so I I saw an opportunity to create something that was very different in the space. I saw a product that I think had all the right features and functionality, but that we just needed to explore that a bit more and express that in a better way. And I ultimately saw a company that I think needed to exist, which is you know, someone who is almost like the, an example I've used before is, you know, if you go to Patagonia, there's a bunch of different glove manufacturers. There's one glove manufacturer I really like called Huestra that just, you know, their gloves functionally aren't any better or any worse than the competition, but they're beautifully, beautifully made. And every time that, you know, we live in Colorado, so in the winters here, it gets brutally cold. We get get feet of snow up where we live. So, you know, I need gloves at the end of the day, but these gloves, I feel great every time I put them on. It's a wonderful experience. There's just like, there's a connection and a spark that's there. And I wanted to try to recreate that in a space that I think is otherwise just a little too brutal and effective and efficient
0: yeah so I want to dig into that a little bit to yeah. but, but first, talk to me about going to flow from you know major companies like Apple and Square. What was it like making that transition
1: so it was very different. It was a complete departure in a lot of ways from what i 've done previously. but something that I identified and that i 've tried to optimize for since very early on in my career is the way that I think of it is I always want to be on this steep part of the learning curve. And I, I learned this when I was at Apple, I worked with someone named Jason Wilson, who's gone on to do incredible work with Sonos and Adobe and a bunch of other brands. But one thing that I thought was incredible about him is he was constantly challenging himself. So he would, even though he had a great gig at Apple, he would only do that for six months intentionally by design, by, you know, on on his end, Apple wanted to work with him for longer, but he would have a hard end date and then he would force himself to go on to a different challenge. And that's one, it really goes against the grain of how we all operate. You know, we all want to be comfortable. We all want to have competence in what we're doing. We want to have this sense of self-confidence because we've mastered it and we know how to do it. You know, there's always, when you take on a new challenge, there's always that, you know, deep discomfort early on of like you're suddenly confronted with all these old thoughts if I could be bad at this I could fail at this how's this gonna go am I gonna be able to be successful here So I think there's something really difficult in doing that. But what I saw when I worked with Jason was he had, and I often refer to this as a sample size, he had a much larger sample size of experiences to draw on. So when he worked on a problem, he could say, well, I've seen it solved this way. I've also seen it solved this way. Here's another way we could approach it. But you know, maybe this is actually the way we might want to think about it. As compared to somebody who, you know, has kind of, Stayed where the water's warm, stayed where things are comfortable. And when they're confronted with a difficult problem, they just don't really have that much to draw on. And so I've always optimized for that. And so even, you know, I only stayed at Apple three and a half years because once I figured it out and once my learning curve kind of flattened, I felt like it was probably better for me long term to move on to a new challenge. And so then I moved from Apple to Square. And at the time that I did that, you know, Square was less than 50 people. In size. And I will tell you now it's very common for people to, you know, for all the best people, whether it's designers or engineers or product managers, all the best people typically will work at a startup, or some sort of a late stage startup like a Facebook. But back then when I was at Apple, no one was leaving Apple to go and work at a startup. So I remember when I, I knew that this was the right thing for me, I was super excited about it. And I still remember getting in the room, you know, with my creative director, my executive creative director at Apple and telling them that I was going to move on and accepted a position at Square. And they were super warm and wonderful and, you know, wanted to see what they could do to keep me on the team and, and all of that good stuff. But I could just see this look in the back of their eyes, like, what are you doing? No one leaves Apple to go, like, this is such a mistake. And yet if I hadn't, you know... Like it's decisions like that, at every point in my life that I've ever chosen the harder option and thrown myself into it, good things have always come. And so, you know, I had it, that was an incredible experience that I ended up having at Square. You know, I was there from 50 to 1500. I was at the New York Stock Exchange when we rang the bell and and Square went public. I got the opportunity to report to Jack Dorsey and be a part of the leadership team and work with people like Keith Raboy. I, you know, led the entire design team and grew that from four to 40. So that was a once in a lifetime experience, but it required that I got out of that warm, comfortable environment and took on a new challenge and threw myself into it. And so, you know, again, I ended up leaving Square after five and a half years, kind of for a similar reason. But I've always tried to optimize for that. And so in my mind, like, yes, things are, it's very different. It flows a much smaller team. We're not an incumbent. You know, we've been, we're the scrappy underdog that's fighting to be fit to compete and fit to win and fit to win over the hearts and minds of of customers in the space. And so it's a very different problem. But again, in my mind, it's part of a long theme of just, I always want to be growing. And when I get comfortable, I get uncomfortable. And so I'm always looking for that next challenge.
0: So that leads us back to the market uh, and flow, right? Uh, crowded market. How do, yeah. how do you take, and I believe these are your words, a generic <laughs> kind of EQ product and turn it into an opinionated and unique one?
1: I can tell you it's definitely not a linear process. So in my mind, you know, the the best analogy that I've had, and it seems to resonate with people is... So if you think about the productivity space, you know, there's Asana, there's Monday, there's Flow, there's Trello, there's Todoist, there's things, and I could continue going on. And in my mind, what that means, two things. One, it's a huge marketplace, because again, I think it's solving this age-old problem of we all have one life on this planet. We want to get some things done and make some progress. And that inherently means that we, at some point, need to get organized and need to start like making sure that we do the things we say we're going to do. And that requires some sort of a system for getting things done. And so it's a big market. It's not going to be contracting anytime soon. Solves a really old problem. So then it ends up being this constant fight for market share. And the way that I've thought about that, you know, another crowded market where you're fighting for market share is, you know, think about the next time you go into a grocery store or like here in town when I go to Alfalfa's, which is a local one, or go to Whole Foods, go to an aisle like the ketchup aisle what the hell's going on on that aisle? There's 10, 15 brands. They literally all at the end of the day, sell ketchup with a few other additional ingredients. That's so just tomatoes with a few other ingredients. And I think that's a great lens from which to look at the productivity space. And what I mean by that is at the end of the day, the building blocks or the individual features and pieces that we all sell and market are very similar. You know, you have tasks, you have projects, you have due dates, you have notes, You have reminders, you have notifications, you have all these things, but at the end of the day, they all end up being very similar. And so I think anytime that is the environment that you're in, the only way to win is to compete and attempt to win as many customers as possible based on differentiation. And so, you know, that was something that I had a lot of conviction in when I accepted the role at Flow was that we needed to figure out how we were gonna differentiate ourselves. And in my mind, the way that I think about that, and I just wanna be super clear here because I think there's a lot of ways people take that conclusion and then jump into the wrong place with it, But what that means isn't that you just focus on the marketing layer and like, what crazy zany things can we do and how maybe it's more colors and more stuff or more bold or more vulgar or whatever it is and just try to be, you know, almost get people's attention in a a harsh, comical way. I don't think that's it. In my mind, differentiation, what that means is it starts and ends with the product. That is the foundation. That's the atomic center of that differentiation. And so you have to first figure out how is our product going to be different because, if you put yourself in the shoes of a customer, say you sell them on that you have a different product and that you're doing something different. The moment they use your product, if that's not true, they're gone. Like that, they don't have any time because you basically sold them a bag of goods. And so if at the end of the day, you're gonna keep customers and win customers based on the product, then you start there. And then from there you scaffold out. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have to figure out How are we going to make the product different? Then how are we going to make sure that, and this is, again, goes back to what I learned at Apple of it all starts and ends with the product. One wonderful principle of Apple's marketing is they don't fabricate stories. And it literally, the product speaks for itself and they put it front and center of everything that they do. They put the UI front and center because the UI is beautiful. They put the animations front and center of the product because they're beautiful. They put the hardware front and center but they still have to tell a compelling narrative around that and help that become a story that people can latch onto and understand and have a connection with. And so it starts with the product, then you figure out that narrative and that's kind of your marketing layer. And then you just want to make sure that there's alignment and that these things are snapping into place at the branding layer. So the way, you know, ultimately the way I kind of described it is when we were done reinventing flow and focusing on differentiation, we wanted to look sound and feel different from the competition uh, not at every level of the experience. And so in terms of what that looks like, it's been a really long process. We've been at it for 18 months. We've got better answers than we had six months ago, <laughs> better answers than I had 12 months ago. But it's something, I, I think you, it's not like you go to the top of a mountain, get a conclusion, and then you just ride that out, you know, until the end of time. In my mind, it's a constant exercise of fine tuning, honing, reassessing, how you are going to be different. And I think that should be changing and evolving over over time. But the way that we really thought about it is it needed to start with the product. So that's why we spent the last 18 months, you know, literally reinventing the product and creating a new version of it that we call FlowX, which is a nod to our 10th anniversary, which we're celebrating this year. So we have that new product, then we've been working really hard. And a lot of this will start to see the light of day in the next month uh, at that narrative level. And then we've spent a lot of time at the branding level and go deeper there. But that's kind of a... Yeah,
0: yeah. So let's go a little bit on on the product and talk at the feature level. Um, I think it's interesting to see how this, I don't want to say trickles down, but applies at the feature level. Like, How do you decide what features should be added? How do you distinguish between features that are needed versus wanted and how do you add functionality in a way that's that's minimal but impactful
1: yeah so maybe i'll start with the last one because that's something we really focused on is you know again just to help people understand i guess how i think about this is when you think about differentiation i think there's a couple things that you want to start that thought process from and that you want to have be kind of, I don't know, stars in the constellation that you refer to as you're, as you're building this. And one of those is what are you, we uniquely qualified and capable of building that no one else can. And I think at flow, that's really, we're always going to try to aim for something that's, it's not going to be overly built. It's not going to be overly flexible. It's not going to potentially be as powerful and flexible as one of our competitors might do it, we're always gonna try to find this intersection of having it be simpler and better. And so ultimately what we're trying to come to when we work on something like tagging, for instance, tagging at the end of the day, it's a well-known form factor. It's very difficult to, you know, quote unquote, innovate on something like tagging. And so really what we're trying to do is say, you know, we're trying to optimize for two things. We wanna make the product really easy for people to pick up that in my mind has a bunch of conclusions <laughs> means that you don't, you know, I think I love, uh, you know, Omni has a bunch of productivity products. I love the spirit of them. I, you know, I love parts of Omni Focus, but I think they're kind of a masterclass and everything is just really, really hard to like, if you're just, if you just signed up for their service, you better have a lot, a big reserve of willpower and energy and excitement because that's going to get tapped out at every level when you go into the product because everything is just not simple. Everything requires that you, it's nothing set up for you. Everything's a blank slate. Everything's also hyper flexible, And so inevitably what that means, I think, especially today is that people get there and they just go, what? Like there's nothing, I can't start doing anything with this now. And so we always wanna make sure that things are simple enough that anybody new can grasp onto how Flow works or how this feature in Flow works and as little as possible. But we also wanna make it so that it's powerful enough that people don't outgrow it. And so ultimately, I think what that means in my mind is that leads us towards opinionated solutions and it leads us towards doing things in a like, I wouldn't say minimum viable, but minimum impactful way. So an example of that is, start, and I'll start, telling the story of this feature by just starting with customer feedback. And the feedback we got from customers is, hey, it's wonderful, you know, that I've got deadlines. And, you know, I see today I've got 10 tasks, and they're all due today. It's great. How do I know which one's most important, especially since I didn't create these tasks, a team member did, a PM did, an executive did, you know, someone else on my team did. How do I know which one of these is most important? Because I might not be able to get all these done. And I just want to make sure I'm doing the right things great question. We had nothing in our product to be able to help. And so a really simple feature that we created was something we called priority. And all that was is, you know, everybody has, and that's what's wonderful, I think, about software is anyone has the right, has the ability to come up with their own execution of this. And it can be wildly different, or it can be wildly simple, but everybody, it's, it's a green space, you know, for all intents and purposes. And so We thought about that and we knew, you know, clearly we understood the the feedback we were getting from customers and it made complete sense. And it felt like we just wanted to have, again, we don't want to over-engineer it. We didn't want to make it a system where as a company, you could have 10 levels of priority and you can create them and each can have a different name and a different emoji and different things. We didn't want to do that, although that was something we discussed. So what we ended up executing, again, trying to arrive at that intersection of simpler, but also better. Then the competition is we ended up with just four levels of hierarchy that any task could be given. It's low, medium, high, or urgent. And I think the most interesting one there is urgent because that's typically not something that is in other of any of our competitors' executions of priority. Typically, it's just low, medium, high. But it, you know, in my life, in our experience as a team there is a different level of urgency or a different level of priority to something that's urgent because it's not just important. It needs to happen as soon as possible. And so, you know, every, all of our customers got those four options. Each one has an emoji that then shows up when someone assigns you a task and it has a priority on it. We'll communicate that priority to you. We'll show it in task lists. We'll show it in Kanban boards. If you have it, we will let you know when the priority on a task has been updated if you're following that task. So, you know, there's a bunch of then ways that we thread that through, but the ultimate execution of it is very, very, very simple. And so I think there's a good example of like, clear feedback from customers. But ultimately, we didn't need to spend six months and over engineer a solution. What most people were looking for was just like, I just need something I need a simple, lightweight, fast, but effective tool.
0: I'd love to ask you too. like, you talked a lot about Apple, are there big learnings from Square too? Yes.
1: Yeah, but I think they're very different. But I'm happy to dive into those next time too.
0: Yeah, no, I think I think that would be good okay yeah let's set up a date for for time too because this has been a lot of fun you have a lot to say i think the listeners are gonna love it so yeah let's do the second part
1: yeah absolutely thanks so much for having me on today